0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. I just spoke with Rachel Prentice about her new book, Bodies in Formation, an ethnography of anatomy and surgery education. This came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. This is a super fascinating book, whether you are a practitioner of science studies, a scholar or a writer of anthropology, of the history of medicine, of the practice of contemporary medicine, or whether you are none of the above and you just like learning about, reading about, and are interested in medicine, in how your doctors are getting educated, how the doctors of the future are getting educated, perhaps how you have been or will be educated in the future. So it's really, really interesting for any of us who are interested in medicine, its practices, its social, cultural, and practical formations in general. The book is set up as a series of ethnographic case studies in sites that range from anatomical cadaver dissections in the context of early medical school education to surgery operating rooms. And so she looks at the education and the training of medical residents and also the practices of surgery in surgical operating rooms and also in laboratories that are developing virtual and simulation technologies that are ways of potentially opening up new kinds of education to residents and to students who are training in surgical techniques, or perhaps um, eventually are ways that surgeons will be able to perform surgery remotely. So these are inherently fascinating case studies that Prentice is presenting. And in each of these cases, what she's doing is taking us through ways of thinking about aspects of the education and practice of surgeons, of science in general, that we may not think about in terms of physicality, in terms of bodies, and showing how they are fundamentally embodied, fundamentally physical. So throughout, we get a story here of the ways that practice, surgical practice, that surgical training, that surgical ethics, and many other related issues are fundamentally and fully embodied practices. And there are really wonderful ways in the book that Prentice is complicating or overturning some of the aspects of this historiography that we might take for granted. So I'll stop there so that you can get to the conversation itself. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I'll definitely be teaching with this and I hope you enjoy the book and also so enjoy the conversation. I definitely did. We're here today to talk with Rachel Prentice about her new book, Bodies in Formation, an Ethnography of Anatomy and Surgery Education. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Rachel, and thank you so much for making time, especially during these precious summer months, to talk to me today about your new book. Thank you. So could we start off by doing something that's traditional at New Books and STS? And that's talking a little bit about what brought you to this book that we're talking about. And it's a fabulous book, and I'm really, really looking forward to the conversation. So what brought you in general to the field of STS? It's a field that I think a lot of us who work in um, came to from very different kinds of paths because many of us didn't realize this was an option, right, And early in our careers. What brought you in particular to STS as a mode of inquiry?
1: I think, in a sense, it goes back to college, actually. Um, I had been studying the sciences with mixed success, studying humanities with great success. Um, and so I ended up you know, getting a degree that had a lot of biology, but, but a lot of humanities. And then went off to be a journalist for close to a decade before I went back to grad school, but always gravitated to topics that related to science and technology at some level. And when I got to grad school at MIT, um, and that was its own long story, but it, when I got to grad school, I took a course in my first semester that was a course with Sherry Turkle and Mitchell Resnick um, about computation. was called systems and self, and ended up choosing a medical object, which is the Visible Human Project, to write about for my final project. And I thought that what I would end up doing for a dissertation, I really liked the topic. I liked, um, I liked the way that it engaged both computation and medicine and thought that that's what I was going to write the dissertation about. But when I got into the field um, thinking about studying how the Visible Human Project had been taken up within medicine and medical education, what I found was that it hadn't been. And that it had been in, or rather it had been in very, very limited ways. And that what was much more interesting, um, both to me and in in a sense in in relation to the state of the literature, was to see how various, was to go back and look at really medical education from how students are learning and what they're doing in the anatomy lab. To then thinking about technology, but i didn't I felt that if I was going to talk about say haptics, which is the sense of touch as it 's um, constructed within a computer, that I had to know something about what it was like to be learning these things traditionally, so the book ended up being this mix of going back and saying what what 's going on when students are learning in the anatomy lab what 's going on in surgery, and then we can start to think about things like simulation and Um, other kinds of technologies. So that, that basic sense that the Visible Human Project had not been picked up in the way that I thought it had, and that simulation was not as far as I thought it was, was what drove me to go back and look more at traditional modes of education, but always with an eye towards technological change.
0: Great. Now, you've already mentioned that this began in the context of graduate work at MIT, and um, I write that this began as a dissertation project. Yes, it did. So can you talk a little bit about that transformation from dissertation to book? Are there any parts of that process that stand out for you as particularly notable, anything that you'd like to talk about, and or are there any ways in which the nature of the project shifted from dissertation to book?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would say actually that the book is more than many, a very major, major set of revisions from the dissertation. I ended up feeling that the data that I had did not include enough work on surgery. So I went back into the field at a different medical school, a different set of hospitals to do more observations of surgery in particular. And you know, along the way, interviewed a few more anatomists, but um so that the book, the surgical chapters, have much more than what was in the dissertation. I think also that this project was fairly complicated, and it had, in a sense, three sites, anatomy labs, surgery, you know, operating rooms, and technology construction labs. And so I think that the, coming to what was ultimately became the structure of the book was a long haul. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing range and breadth of kinds of ethnography that you brought to bear on this project. And um, over the, we'll, we'll talk about the structure of the book and um, the chapters in a few moments. But one of the things that's so striking is how Really organically, the, the three kind of major sections of the book fit together as part of a coherent larger narrative story and set of arguments, but still represent, in some ways, very distinct kinds of practices. So, this is actually one of the things that I wanted to ask you about right at the beginning. You talk um, throughout the book about the different kinds of ethnography and ethnographic practices that you um, undertook to write this story and to study this story. They included Ethnographies at various different universities um, and programs, both in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, you talk about working with individual anatomists, and you also talk about taking an anatomy course at one point. So, could you talk a little bit for us about the nature of the ethnographic work that you brought to bear for the book? I mean, we'll we'll talk about specifics, I'm sure, over the course of the chapters. But were, what was what were some of the challenges? in doing this kind of, in this range of ethnographic practice for you? And does anything about the process, um, either at the stage where this was a graduate uh, research project or at the stage where you went back and did more work on the surgical practices for the revisions um, that stand out for you as particularly notable or anything that you'd like to share about that process?
1: Yeah, um, so... Let me start with the anatomy class. Basically, as I said, I had set out to write about the Visible Human Project, which is a digital anatomy project done by the National Library of Medicine, where they took a couple of cadavers. Uh, Most famously, the male cadaver was a death row inmate, and they imaged them every way they could think of, and then they they froze them and sectioned them and took photographs of the, the sections as they removed them. And what My two of my dissertation committee members, Evelyn Hammonds and Sherry Turkle, said was, well, if you're going to look at digital anatomy, you've got to go take an anatomy class, full stop. And I think in a sense that 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 move set me on the trajectory of thinking it always comparatively. What's the digital and how does it compare to what's going on in the quote-unquote real world? Um, And I think... The, uh, where you're talking in a sense about variety of different kinds of ethnography, in fact, I think there was something fairly consistent throughout, uh, with the possible exception of the anatomy course, although I did sit on it on other courses at different points in the process, but um, for the most part what I did was I picked a fairly small group of people, and it started off with some of the people working on the Divisible Human Project, but then it moved to a lab um, at one of the universities that I studied that was building digital tools for for teaching anatomy. And that led me in the kind of classic multi-sided ethnography way to going to watch one of the surgeons who was in the who was part of this digital anatomy group. So she, she said, come on into the OR. You'll understand much more when you uh, hang out for a bit. So I did that. And the anatomy lab had been very connected to this digital technologies lab. So I've spent a lot of time in the anatomy lab and was expecting to write mostly about anatomy. And so the surgery piece grew out of this lab's interest in surgical simulation and the presence of surgeons in the lab. And I think that... Um, so in a sense what i want to say i did was was continually picked fairly small groups of people to study you know a relatively small laboratory a couple of surgical groups and then followed them where they led me so there were a couple of other little methods that I used. I did do uh, regular coffee with the group, the digital technologies group, which included some anatomists, some surgeons, uh, some a bunch of digital technologies type people. And th- that began really as a discussion session. I, what I found out was that physicians, by virtue of being smart people who do a lot of repetitive work, want to talk about they're doing. They want to talk about the big picture. They're really hungry for the big picture. And that was just a genuinely wonderful opportunity for me to say, okay, I get to now hear how you people open up some of the issues that we're talking about. And I'm just going to take notes and sit here and occasionally ask a question. Um, so that in a sense, I think the pieces hold together in part through the types of groups that I found. Um, always people who were Practitioners interested in technological development, and I think that's really what holds the book together.
0: Is there before we move um, beyond this topic because it's so fascinating, and I imagine that um, I imagine that you have lots of students who actually learn about your research and will read the book if they haven't already read at least parts of the book, and get really excited to do if not the same kind of ethnography, but ethnography of their own as part of exploring their own kinds of questions. Is there anything you learned from in the course of your own ethnographic practice from start to finish that you uh, would impart to a student wanting to embark on a comparable kind of ethnography that really made a huge difference for you that you wouldn't have known um, at the outset? I think, you know, if you
1: talk to ethnographers, anthropologists in particular who've gone overseas, they'll often talk about periods of uncertainty, periods where they quite literally forget how to cross the street. And I think that, that those moments of uncertainty, those moments when you really don't know why is it you're in the field, what are you doing, what are you, what do you do next – be some of the richest moments that you have in the whole process. And and I had my, despite being in the United States in a place I know well, um, I had moments when I was asking myself, well, have I asked every question I can possibly ask? I'm supposed to be here for a year. What's next? And you got some good advice from various people who said, stop asking questions, hang out, see what's just, see, get the lay of the land, get to know these people, get them to know them at all kinds of different levels. Other things will emerge. Don't worry so much about asking every one of the right questions. And in a sense, I think that those moments where you just are in a sense absorbing the culture to put it in the most kind of rudimentary anthropological terms are the moments where surprising things come up or you realize that you know things that you wouldn't have expected that you know about the field or about the site or about the people that are in it. And I think a lot of graduate students somewhat uh, totally unsurprisingly go into the field saying, okay, I've got this list of questions. I've got these people I've got to interview. I've got this much time. I've got to, you know, bang, 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 get it all out. And in fact, I think that one of the best definitions of anthropology in particular, that which was, which was given by one of my fellow classmates at MIT, was you know, anthropology is a process of slowing down and opening up. And the more you can let yourself slow down and keep peeling back those layers of the onion, the richer your account is going to be.
0: I think um I think that's totally right and thank you so much for sharing that. At least um as a, a little footnote anecdote, um one of the things that I think is challenging for our students, um, or anybody here at UBC for example, and this is just a small um, little subsection of practice that I've been familiar with, trying to do ethnography from the perspective of a kind of contemporary history, is that there's so much regulation on what you can ask. There's The rules for human subjects research are so strict that you have to get everything approved in advance, basically. Um, so it really kind of, in some ways, acts to limit the kind of flexibility in the course of the project, or at least that's the perception sometimes um, by people who are doing this research. So it's actually a really good lesson to keep in mind um, for people, I think, who are doing this. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I, I was just going to say, if I can address that question of IRBs and all of the rules, I mean, I think my, my understanding was it's the, very much the same in Canada as the U.S., <laughs> And what it clearly seems to be, at least in the U.S., is this limitation of liability of the university. And the problem is that the model is biomedical. You know, are you injecting people with stuff? Well, no, I'm asking questions. Mm-hmm. But I think that where I've found it uh, kind of good is thinking about, well, wait a minute, are those not so much the questions, but, but are the kinds of things I'm going to be, be talking about things that could cause some harm in some way? And I think those are important questions to ask. But also I've found with IRBs that they while they don't understand open-ended questioning at all, they can kind of hang with things like when you say, I am going to be asking questions of this type, as opposed to I'm going to be asking this question. And that usually kind of chills them out and says, okay, you've taken our process seriously. You understand the issue of harm and we'll let you go do your thing. So I found it to be generally not as awful. Now, that said, they are harder on graduate students than they are on faculty because I think just power
0: dynamics and all
1: that. But I think that they do let people go if you sort of respect their process.
0: Thank you. So uh, one of the things, so as we now get into the body of the book, one of the things that's so striking and so inspiring about the book, and we'll see evidence of this as we get into the chapters, is the way that it brings together at least two major fields in exploring the practice of anatomical and surgical education in North America. So you say very clearly early in the book, and this is borne out by the chapters, that there's inspiration drawn from bringing together the kind of careful laboratory studies of a science studies approach with the analytics of subject formation from anthropology. And together, what this does is give um, the book a way of talking about and treating Emotions, judgments, ethics, affects, perceptions, as... Embodied is fundamentally embodied through situated practice, and it's really a, a very striking kind of a, a set of approaches that you've brought to bear in the work. As we move through the chapters, there are a number of thinkers, or um, rather, touch sto- conceptual touchstones or methodological touchstones that repeatedly come up in the chapters that are, at least from one reader's perspective, seem to have been um, influential, inspirational touchstones for you. So, the work of Anne Marie Mole. Um, you also mentioned the work of Maus and his idea about culturally unique techniques of the body. Are there, were there other major inspirations right at the beginning before we get into the chapters that were crucial for how you conceptualized and undertook the work for the book?
1: Uh, a lot, uh, probably too many to name. Um, I think that broadly one of the things as um, anthropologist of science, technology, and medicine and formation in an STS department that was doing both history and anthropology. One of the kind of early tensions in the writing that I had to work out that I think plays out through this 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 book is the anthropological focus more on the people and some STS, not all STS, focus more on objects, on technologies, um, and where you put that analytic focus was was always in play for me, and I think in ultimately in creative tension, in good ways and um, so that what I was really trying to 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 push on was thinking that what laboratory studies has done so well, and what frankly you know, there 's a lot of good literature if you think about it, a small but quite good literature on anatomy laboratories and anatomy students or on surgery it's it 's very much the same thing. These are good studies that look not at all. A technology they don't look at all at what people are doing with their hands um and so this was part of why i said i can't do the technological story without the other story and so what was really working for me in terms of thinking about mall in terms of thinking with mouse was people saying there are there are specific ways of an open Uh, excuse me specific ways of knowing opened up through particular ways of interacting uh, whether with technologies or tools or whatever but that those are also quite specific to different cultures surgeons are not like they don't see bodies in the way that um most of the rest of the world sees bodies at least in their professional um work and really taking that seriously and trying to think about what that means in terms of how you solve problems is fascinating. I remember sitting in just in, um, you know, surgical waiting room. We were waiting for a room to turn over, and the surgeon that I was studying was looking at the newspaper. And there was a photograph of Randy Johnson, who's a baseball pitcher, way with his arm way, way back at the top part of a pitch. And what she noticed wasn't that. Here is this famous pitcher. What she noticed was the rotation of his shoulder was way beyond the normal. A rotation of a regular person so she wasn't seeing the same baseball player that you or I might have seen in that same photo and it was fascinating and so thinking with with theorists and others who were able to handle the fact that we don't all see people we don't all see bodies the same ways was was actually one of the real joys of doing the book
0: Now, the book itself begins and and in some ways ends with two moments that frame the story that's to come. And I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but I just want to put this out there as a way of framing our travel through the chapters of the book. You talk about a near-fatal slip of a knife during a surgery to excise a tumor in a patient's liver and take Mm -hmm. us through that vignette. You also talk about an ethical quandary, sort of a conversation that you were party to over whether it's okay for students to kill a patient on a virtual reality simulator. So what does killing mean and um, how do we use that to understand uh, the What's going to be a series of really wonderful chapters that explore two major guiding questions for the book. And you set these out at the beginning, and I'm just going to read these or set these out very briefly for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. I should say. I should just
1: say killing the virtual patient not killing a the, that's right. in terms of that second vignette it's that's specifically right. a virtual patient not Sorry. a real patient which has its own very different set of issues. That's
0: right. And the the nature of a patient as both as simultaneously occupying a kind of physical and virtual realm um is something that actually is very important in the book so thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So what what killing means here is on is also something that's interesting because we're talking about a virtual a virtual patient okay so the two guiding questions first how do physicians become prepared and prepared technically ethically and emotionally to cut open a human body to examine or to prepare it and at the same time the second question how do changing technologies and practices for learning and for working with bodies, alter their meaning. Both the meaning of the bodies, also the the meaning of the technologies, the meanings of the practices, and the meanings of the kinds of ways of self-fashioning and self-conceptualizing of the people who are actually undertaking these practices, acting these practices. So over the course of the book, we have a series of chapters that are arranged broadly in three parts. The ordering of the book is arranged by field site, including the field sites that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, anatomy labs, operating rooms, and technology design laboratories. The first part of the book entails a couple of chapters, and it looks at anatomy labs as spaces where a lot of different kinds of work are done. Perhaps most importantly medical students begin to develop their kinds of emotional approaches toward patients. And also, you show in this context how dissection as a tool for teaching anatomy, for teaching surgeons, for teaching doctors, is increasingly under debate, is increasingly contested. So we'll look at these issues concept- or consequently as we work through the chapters. Um, chap- one of the things that's happening in Chapter 1 is something that methodologically or conceptually happens also in some of the other chapters, and it's really interesting, and it's particularly illuminating for a reader who comes to the book without a deep background in the kind of literature on contemporary and historical medical education. Now, chapter, what what I mean is that you're taking a historiographical, so sort of an issue that's kind of taken for granted historiographically, or an argument that's made historiographically in... Overwhelmingly one way, and and complicating it, and complicating it productively in a way that illuminates how we think about all of the components of the argument that go into making it. So, chapter one considers how medical schools teach students to simultaneously, at the same time, both objectify cadavers and to, as you as you say, activate the person who once occupied the cadaver. So there's this kind of dual nature of person and object that the cadaver is simultaneously occupying, and the way that students learn to navigate that and create that is a, is one of the foci of this chapter. So here, um, one of the arguments that you're taking on has been an argument that says that education in anatomical dissection involves progressive detachment by students. Now, you're showing here, actually, that students' reflections emotionally and, and philosophically on the ontological status of the cadaver is an important part of the process and actually prepares them for the complexities of the job that is to come for them. So can you talk about that way of thinking about this transformation and, and that part of the argument for you? Yeah, I think um,
1: the, 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 the argument that you mentioned, which is this this taking a longstanding argument and, and complicating it, it, the one that you're specifically, I think, referencing is, is the, the a lot of the literature of medical socialization, etc., medical work, talks in a somewhat relentless and, I would say, kind of dreary way about how all of biomedical training is about objectifying the patient. And I think the person who first breathed a real breath of fresh air into that literature was actually Karis Thompson, who said, well, wait a second, actually what patients are doing is sometimes they're objectifying themselves and sometimes that's not a bad thing. When you are um, devastated by the end of a pregnancy, for example, saying, oh, my uterus is all messed up is a way of distancing yourself and creating emotional distance by objectifying your uterus and saying that. Other times when you've say given birth, it's your own um, it's something you did so you, so you're, you're activating yourself as a person person in the, in the patient. So what I was, was looking at with the anatomy laboratories was physicians doing some of the same, kinds of things where it's not helpful necessarily to be dissecting especially some of the scary parts of a, of a person and thinking about the person on the other hand sometimes you can't not and so what I think some of the best medical students do is, or the the best, ultimately the best physicians do is they're able to at different points, turn it off and on Um, either to try to help a patient, as I describe in the chapter or for their own um, management of what is genuinely emotionally intense work. So um, that doesn't always happen. And one of the little notes that I put in that chapter is uh, we've, most of us have unfortunately met physicians who can't who can't treat people like people and um but i think that the best ones can do that and then go into the operating room and work on people as 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 surgical things to be worked on and so what i'm trying to say is that the the story about objectification is is it's, it's It's correct as far as it goes. But that if we miss the ways and, and activate the person, as Marilyn Strathairn's phrase, if we look at the ways in medicine that the person gets enrolled in medical care, it becomes a much more interesting story. And I think that starts in the anatomy lab because a cadaver is neither person in the sense of living, breathing, able to talk, nor is it an object because there was at one time a person there. And you're constantly when confronted with a cadaver, moving back and forth. Oh, gee, look at the cauda equina, which is the nerve at the, the, the base of the back, um, or wait a minute, this was somebody who had a breast implant or something else that reminds me that there was somebody who made certain decisions in their life, um, including ultimately the decision to donate their body.
0: Now, after uh, the stage is set and we learn something about what's happening in these dissection labs and these practices, you take us into a chapter that looks specifically at debates over whether, and contemporary debates over whether or not to curb or reduce the amount of time spent on cadaver dissection or to get rid of it altogether as part of anatomy teaching. So can you talk a little bit about that debate as it shapes the argument that you're making in this part of the book? So what are some of the sort of pressing issues there and how does this shape the way you're dealing with these issues here?
1: Yeah, well, anatomy is interesting in that it's, um, and the puns are ubiquitous, so I'll just go ahead and use one here. It's a dead science, by which I mean new discoveries of human structure at the level of gross anatomy, just the occasional bend in the nerve, that kind of thing, but really there's nothing new to be found. And what's happened as a consequence is that there's no natural home for anatomy. So, anatomists are coming out of molecular biology departments, sometimes connected to surgery, sometimes connected to this, that, the other. But there's no advocacy group for anatomy beyond, beyond, among other things, medical students themselves who find it a really important experience. So, medical Administ- medical school administrators are saying, "Well, gee, you know, there's no new research thing. There's not people bringing in tons of research money to look at anatomy. Um, willed body programs, body donation programs are very expensive to run. Um, so let's cut. Let's 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 make room for more more modern sciences in the curriculum. Let's cut out some of the cadavers that we're having to work on, and let's use new technologies. And if your goal is to get students to their board exams um, in, with sufficient anatomical knowledge, then maybe that's okay. Although I might argue that the emotional experience adds to learning. But if your goal is to get students thinking about the kinds of things that my informants talked about in terms of doing the experience of anatomy, the kinds of deep emotional work that they do, Then you're asking a different set of questions about dissection, but it's a set of questions that's much, much harder to quantify. I can't say on a scale of one to 10 that the average medical student um, gets, you know, six is a six on the scale of having emotionally dealt with anatomy. It just doesn't work that way. Um, And so these are people that, that want those kinds of numbers. So. How to quantify the emotional lessons of the anatomy laboratory is a very tough thing. And administrators are saying, well, they're doing well on the board exam, so let's cut it more. And students uniformly say, well, wait a second. This is our moment to become socialized. This is the first thing that really feels clinical that we do. We've done all this organic chemistry. We don't really know how that relates to treatment of patients but the anatomy laboratory feels like something close so it's a huge tension and i think it's a controversy that opens up some of the issues going on in medical schools now in interesting ways and i think there's actually more work to be done on it
0: one of the uh, right along these lines one of the really interesting things for me that's happening in this chapter is that you're showing the way uh, that through the practice of undertaking and practicing these uh, anatomical dissections students are actually a crucial part of that is that they're forging links between the cadaver's body and their own bodies so, so this becomes part of a general storyline throughout the book where you're showing the development of not just something called an anatomical body but also the development of the surgeon's body mm-hmm. through the process of this kind of education so, this seems to be another way that this physical presence of dissection in the cadaver seems like it would crucially determine some aspect of the formation of the surgeon's body, if in fact that is part of the argument that's extending throughout the book. Um,
1: I think the answer is yes. <laughs> um I think that What struck me in the anatomy course that I took, for example, was that the professor who was not a surgeon, he was a biologist of uh, um, various things. And, but what he continually did, he would show a slide that had say, um, I don't know, call it the muscles of the calf or something. And then he'd show us his caps and show it, you know, and it got a little weird at times, but not too weird. Um, But I, there was always this way in which, and and I've, I've, I've seen medical students do the same kinds of things. Well, okay, let me look, take a look at your shoulder so that I can see how the, the various parts fit together in ways that I can look at from the outside. How does that help me think about what's on the inside? And I think that there's this coming into awareness of bodies as things with parts on the inside that you're trying to to picture. And that's, I would say not just fundamental for surgeons, but also for, any physician particularly those uh, radiologists and surgeons and a few others who have to think about what's inside in connection to what's going on in the outside sometimes for internists but it's a little bit different Um, they're not always picturing the insides to, to try to think about what's going on
0: Thank you. Um, so I'll just mention this here but not ask you to talk too much about it um, right now. One of the other things, uh, just for listeners who might be interested in this that comes up in this chapter that continues to be important throughout the book, is you raise the importance of the sensory experience of di- of dissection. Not just the visual experience, but frequently throughout the book we are presented with the importance of touch and of smell and um, perhaps on some level of taste and these other kinds of non-visual sensory experiences that seem crucial to forming the practices that you're talking about here. So for anybody who's interested in sensory studies or sensory anthropology, sensory history, there's a lot going on here that's going to be of interest um, along those lines.
1: Yeah. And I think that one of my colleagues recently, and this might be an overstatement, but she recently said that I was actually anti-visual. And I don't think it's quite that, but I think that it is um, one of the criticisms of some of the literature that I've seen is, is that it overplays the visual in part because these are social scientists who are watching, observing people do their thing. So say observing a dissection. And so of course, for the Anthropologists, what they're noting is or the or the social scientists what they're noting is the visual aspects of anatomy but what really struck me both having done a very small amount of dissection myself and having watched a bunch of people do it and heard them talk about it was that the visual is always in play with other senses and I, so i think that it's the overstatement of what's visual and that's it's a critique partly of the social science literature, but also in a way of the ways that the visual has gotten played into medical visualization, where a lot of visualizing tools forget um, that not everything is visible on a screen.
0: Thank you so much. So as we move to the second section of the book, we move into the operating rooms. So this section of the book entails a bunch of chapters that look at the lessons, and you go through technical, ethical, and perceptual lessons of surgical residency in particular. After a chapter that presents... Uh, medical residency programs as total institutions, and that looks at the hidden curriculum of medicine, considering all the kinds of informal lessons that come out of an apprenticeship model of teaching. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's going on in that chapter, including a discussion of the kinds of the different ways of re- responding to a recent reduction of resident work hours to 80 hours per week. And so this is something that's going to touch um, a lot of... Or Probably be very much of interest to anybody who's who's interested in uh, these kinds of these aspects of pedagogy and regulations of pedagogy. So after that, you take us into a chapter that looks specifically at the way surgeons, as you put it, teach control as a technical and ethical value in the operating room. This was particularly fascinating, and I'd I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about this. So can you start us off by talking a little bit about the importance of control? Why is control so important pedagogically in this context, and what are some of the important ways that this control is embodied in the surgical practice of teachers and trainees um, that you looked at in this part of the book?
1: Yeah, and I think that, that... So, so, just to give the most the simplest example or the let me, let me reframe that always residents who are trained in the operating room there 's two mandates: the first and foremost of which is to treat the patient the second is to learn how to do surgery, so that you 've always got this overriding treat the patient as the thing that's most important, yet you have people who don't know what they're doing. So you have to have a way, ways, you have to teach them. They, they get taught by progressively doing more and more complicated tasks from cutting the little ends off the of stitches to holding retractors to much more complicated work. But at each step, the, the, the either a, a resident, a chief resident, or a senior surgeon will make sure that they're doing it in a way that's very carefully done, or they'll teach them techniques like you can, there are points when you can lean on the patient to make sure that your hands are steady, for example. And those are the kinds of techniques of control that I'm talking about. But what I think really matters there is control and ethics together, because I think that what, um, what I was really struck by is that ethics per se in the way that you would find in a medical ethics class, for example, the philosophical ethics just doesn't exist in clinical work. The closest thing is this constant refrain of is this action I'm going to take going to cause harm, but it's very specific. It's very, if I slip here, will I cause more harm than if I, if I cut this blood vessel by accident, will that cause more harm than cutting something else? Um, so it's extremely grounded and extremely specific and is partly about making sure you don't make mistakes. It's partly about learning techniques uh, in the best possible ways. And so what I was thinking was that, that I wanted to talk about ethics as something specifically not taught as philosophical ethics, but specifically talked about as means of controlling your actions so that you don't cause harm to the patients. So it's partly a critique of certain kind of highly abstract conceptions of ethics, although I think they have a really important role to play elsewhere, Um, but also looking at how some of those ethical discussions really work on the ground. and They really don't work as discussions. What they work as is you have to control your actions um, and control your work and control your tendency to want to fix something um, if you get too eager um with the goal of preventing harm so that's what i'm trying to do there
0: and this is actually one of the one of many cases in which at least as uh, from the perspective of one reader, this reader and me, um, one of the things that's consistently been uh, taken apart in the book, or that's consistently been challenged in the book, is a tendency. And my cat is meowing in the background to confirm this. Yes, she also found this. Uh, is a tendency to try to separate the kind of the cognitive from the physical, and the way we understand education and the way we understand practice. And this is one case. In addition to looking at this centrality of emotion to physical embodied practices of surgeon, which also happens in this part of the book where you're really showing, at least again, from, from my perspective, showing the, what can come out of thinking of these as fundamentally connected as fundamentally parts of the same motion of the same act, um, rather than thinking of these as two parts of a dyad that we have to think across um, in order to understand. And so that's, this is one of, I think, the most, um, one of many very productive lessons that I um, think work really well. Thank you. Uh, So as we move into the next chapters and still in the same part of the book, chapter five looks, chapter five for me was really, really fascinating. And this is a chapter that focuses on a kind of surgery called minimally invasive surgery. And the chapter talks um, at length about what this means, how this differs from what we might call open surgery or, or a kind of a more traditional surgery and also ways in which these two modes of surgery actually inform and help shape each other's practices in really interesting ways. So one of the things that's really interesting about this chapter is the way that you're showing the, how the practices of minimally invasive surgery actually transform modes of surgical perception. You argue in here i think very persuasively that doing surgery while looking at a monitor which is what's involved in this kind of practice of minimally invasive surgery it actually changes surgeons perceptual relations to patients bodies this seems a, like a very very important part of the general arg- argument of the book and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about this in the context mm-hmm. of the larger work that the book is doing um yeah
1: i think that the, the One of the key things going back to the anatomy laboratory, one of the most important sets of lessons that uh, medical students and later physicians have to learn is to translate two dimensional images into three dimensional bodies. And that's um, for people who've been doing it for a long time. It's very natural Uh, for people who are new medical students, seeing the body as a 3D thing, seeing the hand is actually made up of many more layers than you think because it's fairly flat is really uh, is really fascinating to watch people do it. And I can say, having done the small amounts of anatomy that I've done, that my 3D perception is dramatically better than it was. And it's a little bit hard to, to describe how, but, but so that, that, so that in a sense, in one sense, then from the sense of the monitor doing surgery on the monitor, quote unquote, with small tools inside the body shouldn't change much because these people, people who are already experienced in making those, those translations, but what I found was is that what changes is the scale because you're putting small instruments and small and a, a camera that magnifies things by 25 or 30 times into the body to do um, arthroscopy laparoscopy and so that what you're looking at is you're looking on the monitor inside the body if you look outside the body what you see are the at the ends of the camera and instruments and you can't really see what's happening inside at all unless you look at the monitor so i think that that, that what i was um i'm trying to think about your, your point about connecting it to the rest of the book, I think that this interest in perception and how perception changes with the tools that you're using, that kind of um, what, how one's experience of the body changes with different modes of knowing the body. And this is a a slightly different mode of knowing the body surgically. And what I found was that surgeons were telling funny stories. They're saying things like, um, you know, this, this, almost insanely weird view of a really bad shoulder that was full of arthritis if you magnify arthritis by 25 or 30 times what it looks like are these like undersea floor in odd colors and it was actually making me kind of seasick um and at one point the arthritis gets in the way of the camera so you have these little white tendrils kind of blocking the camera and she talks about the arthritis falling in our face and i was like wait a second This doesn't make sense, but I heard enough of these kinds of comments to realize that what surgeons were doing was imagining themselves or putting their bodies in a, in a imagining sounds too, too much like they worked it out in their heads. They're sort of placing their own bodies inside that space created by the camera and the body in order to then work within that space. And so that they were thinking about themselves as these, you know, the the best way I think about it is like that fantastic voyage where there's little tiny people inside the body doing work and um and it wasn't that they'd said okay today I'm going to shrink myself and put myself inside the shoulder they just were there and there's good literature in various different places odd places that says that people do these kinds of perceptual things in order to do whatever they're doing that that's, that's that that requires it so um uh, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, which isn't coming to me, but basically the people um, will make the perceptual transformations that they need to do whatever they're doing. So, so actually the classic example is baseball players when they're at bat will perceive a baseball professionals will perceive the baseballs larger and coming at them more slowly than anybody else who's got a baseball thrown at them at a hundred miles an hour. And so that we, you know, it, We we make the perceptual shifts we have to, and those are relatively easily described as things like, I'm swimming inside the joint, but they sound odd to anybody who's outside that situation. Um,
0: Great. Thank you. And, And another thing that comes up in this part of the book that's related to what you were just talking about that's really, really helpful, and I just want to mention this before we move on to the third part of the book, which is also fascinating, um, is that you're really showing here, and this is something that's very, very important, um, but I think isn't usually articulated as as clearly and elegantly and persuasively as you do in this book. You're showing here that in the case of this particular kind of sight, surgical sight, it's not just a matter of seeing. Sight involves action. Sight involves Mm -hmm. bodily practice, as well as what we typically think of as looking at something or seeing something. And I think that's, um, that's a really important lesson and real, really crucial to keep in mind and, Certainly, it's persuasive as you describe this particular case, but I think it's also a lesson that extends perhaps much more broadly to other circumstances. And so, this is one of, another one of the parts of the book that I think translates particularly widely into methodological kind of ripplings that I think will change the way the reader thinks about perhaps his or her own work, um, even if they don't work on history of medicine or anatomical practices in the book. So, I really love that part of the book. This is a long way thing. Thank you. Um, Another thing that's happening in this part of the book that I'll just again signal, because it's one of these important points of transformation that I mentioned earlier, is that in contrast to literature that finds remote and digital technologies, so kind of virtual technologies disembodying, you're actually arguing the opposite here. And so, again, it really complicates what we may otherwise take for granted as a kind of dyadic relationship between the virtual and the physical um, that overwhelmingly moves in one direction. And so that's, I think, another very important part of what's happening here. Thank you. So the third part of the book, as we move to the final chapters, takes us into another super fascinating space. And this is the space of technology design laboratories. And you mentioned early on in our conversation and Early on in the book, also, that this kind of practice or what's happening in these kinds of laboratories in some ways actually stimulated the project from its inception. Um, so it's, it's, and it's a particularly interesting part of the book. This part of the book looks at the ways that various kinds of technologies. And what you call rationalizing logics, and these logics are just as important and intimately related to these technologies, have actually begun pretty dramatically transforming or potentially dramatically transforming traditional medical ways of knowing. And so the narrative arc of the book not only follows uh, different sites, but it also in some ways follows a kind of arc of transformation. This part of the book also shows the really radically interdisciplinary nature of this kind of work that often as you show in these chapters, involves a pretty close collaboration among physicians, engineers, and programmers, among others. Now, Uh, One of the most important transformations, I think, that's happening is happening early on in one of the first chapters in this section, Chapter 6. Chapter 6 considers how virtual reality and other kinds of simulation technologies in medicine have been important in efforts to reform medical education, and we talked a little bit about this early on. Now, you're you're identifying here an important shift, and it's a shift in not just kinds of technologies that are used, but a shift in how... Medical education conceives of the practices of a residency, conceives of the kind of work that it's doing in generating a surgical self. And you you chart here a shift in residency from practicing to master a profession to practicing to master a skill. And this is related to the imposition of what you're calling instrumental logics, which are moving deeply into medical teaching as a result of these emerging technologies. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like a a crucial epistemological point of juncture Mm -hmm. here in this part of the book. Yeah, I think, um, to give
1: an example that's not in the book, um, One of the universities I studied, there was one group that was looking at improving medical professionalism by doing things like mentorship, and another group that was developing a simulation center, which would be where people would work on specific skills. And those two groups weren't we are we're, we're coexisting and and it seems totally contradictory in the sense that the professionalism literature would talk about the whole person would talk about um, a calling to practice medicine in classic Biberian terms and um, so the question is what are you getting when you have this big push to simulate partly it's a research project um, and I think that the people who've become somewhat cynical about some of these simulations uh, would argue that it's really a research project that gives computational people something interesting to work on. The people who are real proponents of simulation, and I think both exist, would argue that it's a new way of teaching and that it's a way of teaching that is more easily verified can I ask this student to um, perform this surgery 10 times in a row and can I evaluate on whatever metrics I've chosen to evaluate the answer is yes but what you've done there is teach a skill and the whole professionalism story would be uh, we're teaching the whole we're we're making people go through this really grueling residency because they're watching how we handle patients, how the, the, the people more senior are handling patients all the time. They're learning good lessons from those people. They're learning how to interact with patients sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And in a sense, the kind of simulation logics, which are, 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 um, let me rephrase that I think there are a lot of places where this desire to verify this desire, and, and it's not a bad thing to say, I want to be certain to standardize, I want to be certain that every one of our medical students has experienced XYZ and that I can be sure that they've mastered it before they move on. I don't think that they're a wrong uh, that that's a wrong impulse but carried with it comes a program that sort of breaks up all of what had been thought of as a professional and asks it to, to breaks it into different pieces and doesn't necessarily reform it into a whole. And I don't think that, that, that medicine is going to drop the notion of professionalism anytime soon. I hope not. But I also think that, that, that there are consequences to saying what that really is is a bag of skills that we want to verify because there are things as, for example, in talking about emotion in the anatomy laboratory, there are things about interacting with patients, interacting medically, that are tremendously difficult to quantify. If those, some of those things drop out, uh, I'm not sure where we end up.
0: Thank you. Now, as we move to the last body chapter before the conclusion, we move from this, I think, really enlightening conceptual and methodological, but also practical exploration of this this general shift in terms of how the practice of the surgeon is being reformulated as a practice of mastering a skill if we, again... Um, carefully follow the implications and the trajectory of this mathematicization body um, and the shift to instrumental logics. And you take us into a really interesting case study that looks closely at an example of a virtual reality simulator that's used in different ways and and what those ways might be um, and what the extent of that use might be are actually left open as a point of debate and a point of future questioning and consideration over the course of the book. But you look in detail at the practices that are involved in not just using this technology, but also in developing this technology. It's super, super fascinating. For STS scholars, um, one of the kind of methodological touchstones that you're bringing to bear in this chapter is the idea of articulation or forms of articulation. Following the work of the tour and for readers and listeners who aren't STS scholars, it's also just a super, super cool example that takes us into the practices of what it means to try to build a bridge between a physical body and a virtual body and how these engineers and doctors and programmers are trying to create a tool that allows that bridging to happen. So can you talk a little bit about this kind of virtual reality simulator? What in this, uh, there's so much in this chapter of the book that's so fascinating that I would love to talk to you about, but is there, um, what for you is perhaps one of the, or two of the most crucial points about the development of this virtual reality simulation that you think are important or crucial to understand what's happening more broadly in this part of the book? um oh okay i think i
1: think that what in a sense this was one of the earliest chapters it was a it it was a paper that i published or was in the process of publishing when i graduated and in a sense i think the some of the what are the pieces of this virtual reality simulator? This is a simulator that allows you to um, work on a virtual uh, uterus. It's a model of a uterus and ovaries that, is, that are made from an actual patient's body, cross sections of a patient's body after she died. Um, and what I think is what I think is interested me in this chapter was the what are the pieces because each section from you know, you've got to build a model you've got to make the model interactive and in some level and you've got to make some way for the person on the outside to to be able to experience that as if they were doing surgery so each of those things the building of the model the, the computation that goes into making that model interactive and the, the, the part that makes you able to interact as if it's a real body each is draws on a very, very different set of, of knowledges from the medical work of modeling to the computational work of making models move, which is called making them deform, which is the, um, the computational thing. And then there's mechanical engineering to build the interfaces that you need. And all of those are informed by by physicians saying, well, this doesn't feel right. This does feel right, et cetera. And I think that what, I was really in some ways what this chapter does is it is it reveals, in a sense, the way that the book emerges out of my interest in technology initially, because so many of the questions that inform the rest of the book come from. Well, what does it mean to try to figure out what what surgery feels like? This is a minimally invasive operation. Well, what does minimally invasive surgery look like and feel like? What does an engineer have to know to create something that feels like you're physically tugging on tissue? Um, and some tissues are, are easier to tug on; some tissues are tougher. What does an engineer need to know to make that happen? And so, what is it happening in the operating room or wherever else to inform that? And I think that. Um, what was so interesting to me was that, that that every time you define it, or let me let me just stop there actually, because there's there's more to be said about that. But I think that it gets. It, I could talk for a while about this chapter and what happens there, and I think that it might be more interesting to kind of wrap up a little bit.
0: Sure, and I so we'll signal this though, or signal to listeners that this is a particularly fascinating chapter for anybody who's interested in the history of technology and the social studies of technology and the ways that these kinds of issues play out in the larger arc of the story. Now, the, As we move to a wrap up, I'll just kind of signal or mention for listeners that the conclusion of the book extends some of these issues that we've just talked about Looks and considers various ways that we might um, conceptualize the role of simulators in teaching programs and looks at several of the kinds of issues that we've talked about in considering the present and future use of technologies of mediation in medical education. And it closes with or one of the closing anecdotes in this book is an example that um, I'll just mention that involves a tattoo, and it's a very interesting tattoo, and it's a tattoo that's very evocative. And I, I'm not going to any more detail, but I will say for listeners: teaser, read the book and read the conclusion. Of the tattoo. Um, and tattooing itself is a fascinating um, kind of topic that we could talk about at, at great length in this of. So, Rachel, there's a ton of material that we could talk about. It's a very, very rich book, and thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time to talk about even parts of the book that we did over the course of the hour. Now, for a very a very rich book like this, of course, there are tons of things that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, and that's natural, but is there anything in particular that comes to mind that you'd like to mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
1: I think one of the things that, um, you know, what's been interesting to me is to present this book to different audiences and the, the, the really interesting feedback I've gotten. And whenever there's been a physician in the audience, it's been particularly fascinating. Many of them have been, have basically had their own stories to add to the stories that I tell in the book or in a a talk based on the book. And those have been really wonderful to to get. And there was one instance where there was a pair of uh, grumpy physicians who I won't name. um, And they kind of took me to task saying, well, but you don't show how wretchedly difficult and abusive medical education can be and this is certainly a story that shows up in lots of the literature that residents are treated you know they, they work very hard um you know numbers like 120 130 hours a week are not unheard of although that's being mandate cuts are being mandated and that lots of um senior phys- physicians have treated residents poorly and My response to that is, I know the literature and I've seen hints of that, but that one of the things that I think shapes the tone of the book is the people who I studied. And I saw, there was one point when I felt like I was set up because everyone said, oh, you got to go talk to this guy. And he was one of the grumpiest surgeons I've ever met, but I got interesting things out of him. Um, But In general, what I saw were the people who somewhat, who were somewhat self-selecting as people who were interested in some of the technological questions that interested me. They were interested in education, medical education as a phenomenon. And generally, I did not see the kind of, um, I saw moments of real Which you could call social control, i.e., I'm going to make very sure that you know that I'm not happy, but I didn't see what you could call abuse. And I'm not saying it isn't happening. Um, I think some people would argue it's gotten better. But I would say that in some ways the book is very much shaped by having studied a group of people who are a little bit unusual in their interest in both technology and education, and for the most part were uh, known to be some of the better teachers in the universities or the medical schools that I was that I was studying. So it's a it, it's it's I think that there are stories to be told about the difficulties of medical education, and it just isn't the story I'm telling here.
0: Now that the book is out and congratulations on a great book, what's next for you? Are there any project or projects that are currently inspiring? Well, for the moment, I'm doing a project that I can't
1: say how large it is. One of the, it's going to be one of the things that if this question of control, which you brought up, um, continues to interest me. And the question, and and, and it, Connects at this point to taking it to a slightly larger context. So right now, I'm looking at control um, techniques of control, thinking about that further in the whole operating team, so including anesthesiologists and nurses with the surgeons, and thinking about the, the broad team and teams that are both connected, but but with somewhat different training and somewhat different hierarchies. And I initially thought that that would be a very small project, it would be a paper or two. I'm um, beginning to think it might not be so little. And but I think that that it, it, again, it's part of the same interest in thinking about all the efforts that are that are important efforts to try to improve outcomes that tend not to look at the kinds of social phenomena that 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 are I think of as the glue of a lot of this work, not my work of a lot of these kinds of work in Successful operating room teams for example are held together by certain kinds of social practices and there's some social scientists who are looking at that for the most part they're looking at it again from the just the human interaction they're not including the STS the technology piece um, and so I think that there's, there's, there's work to be done on that so that's, that's the first project but I can't yet say how it's big it's going to be
0: I was actually um, particularly interested in some of the backstories or hearing more about some of the backstories of some of these fascinating anesthesiologists that come up to you in some of the cases. So this is to say um, that's that, that's fabulous. I'd love to talk with you about that project when it's out. Best of luck with that work. It sounds like another great study. So thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Thanks for a great book and best of luck to you and you your future work. Thanks so
1: much. I really appreciate it.